Today's Power Talk is titled, Downstream Uses for Hydrogen at Scale, Continuing the Conversation with Obsidian. We were joined by Abraham Mooney of Obsidian Renewables. We discussed the Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Mega Project, distribution to industrial sectors, and the realities of getting power across a mountain range to supply Portland. Power Talk is a series of conversations about the changing electric grid, how you can leverage new technologies to increase your reliability and lower your bills, and how you can safeguard yourself. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Power Talk. Today's episode is a continuation from episode 10 entitled What's Happening in the Hydrogen Economy. Uh, Greg, do you mind kicking this one off for us? Let us know what our subject is and who our guest is. Absolutely. Thanks, Nate. You know, we had so much fun in the last episode with uh, Obsidian Renewables. Um, we were meeting with uh, Ken Dragoon and uh, our good friend Abraham Mooney. And uh, Ken is a very, uh, very powerful personality. And at the end of the episode, uh, Abe called me and said, you know, there's a lot more stuff I really wanted to talk about. Can we do another episode? Of course we can do another episode. So, uh Abe was uh, kind enough to uh, come to Hillsboro today so we can uh, dig a little deeper into this. I mean, this is a subject that's very exciting and a subject that we could literally talk for days about. So very, very excited about today's episode. For those who haven't listened to episode 10, just by, by way of uh, summary, um, Obsidian Renewables is really championing the uh, Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Hub, which is a joint venture to establish integrated renewable energy and clean and green hydrogen infrastructure. The hub's going to include electrolytic hydrogen production from new purpose-built wind and solar, long-duration modular storage at low cost, last-mile distribution to industrial, commercial, and agricultural users all across Oregon and Washington. So this is a massive, massive project. Uh, it's part of a DOE program, and uh, the uh, initial applications, I think there was, um, gosh, about 76 or so, 79 applications put in, and uh, 33 applicants were encouraged to... Uh, to uh, submit final applications, which I understand Obsidian did just about two weeks ago. Um, if you tried to get a hold of Obsidian uh, last week, I think everybody was off sleeping because uh, you guys were working 24-7 around the clock to put that in. But if this all happens, as we hope, um, Obsidian projects that the hub will begin producing hydrogen by about 2026 and be completed to its design by about 2032 with continued expansion thereafter. This is a huge, huge mega project. Uh, with Obsidian seeking about $700 million from uh, from DOE to support that project. So massive opportunity for uh, for Pacific Northwest. And we're excited that Abraham could be here today to, uh, to talk to us a little bit about it. Just a, a, a brief overview of Abe. Uh, you can check it out on episode 10 as well, but if, if you're just listening to this one for the first time, Abe spent nine years with uh, TriMet Transit Agency as a systems project manager for capital projects. So he's got deep project management an engineering and procurement construction experience. Uh, he's been working on the hydrogen hub with Obsidian basically since its inception. And uh, Abe holds a BS in mechanical engineering and a master's of science in ecological engineering from Oregon State University. So we got a beaver in the house for all those ducks that are listening. And uh, we all get along up here in Oregon. But um, we've got a big agenda that we want to talk about today. And uh, Abe, why don't I just give you the microphone and let you talk about some of the things that you want to talk about to our listeners, because this is such a vast subject and uh, such an important subject uh, regionally, nationally, and globally as we look to decarbonize the energy and industrial sectors. Great, yeah. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for the introduction. Um, been at, at Obsidian just about one year now and um, just really enjoying myself uh, doing my dream job, really, uh, developing hydrogen, uh, just really every aspect of it from generation to, to customer usage as well. Um, my background, as Greg mentioned, uh, nine years at the transit agency, that's really how I got started. That's still really where my passion is, is transportation. Uh, we'll get there eventually with, uh, with, with Obsidian, but, but we're also being really smart about it, and we think um, it's gonna take a while for transportation to, to come around. So I'll get into some of the uh, customers probably, but uh, we think transportation will be a little slower. Uh, but I wanted to mention just my background at TriMet, that's the regional transit agency. Uh, we we spent a lot of time looking at buses, and, and they still are uh, looking at buses. Uh, they they have electric buses, battery electric buses now, and they're pretty focused on transitioning to hydrogen. won't be instead of, but it'll be in addition, in addition to electric buses, and, and I think we'll see that really across the board. That's that and instead of or is, is pretty important 
um, for, for a lot of aspects of this of this conversation. Let's talk about that for just a second there, the, the, the and as opposed to or. I'm in complete agreement. Good bless you, Nate. Uh, for those of our, our listeners, Nate's a little under the weather today, so uh, he'll be chiming in from time to time, but we, we, want, we want to try to save his voice a little bit. He was actually out sick yesterday. But the, the and, I think, is a big piece of this, uh, both elect, electric and, and hydrogen. And is the differentiator um, distance and use case or, or what, what's going to make the decision whether a bus is going to be electric or hydrogen? I think it's I think it's range, but it's also just the infrastructure that's available. I mean, if you have hydrogen right next door, which you don't today, right? Let's, let's be real. Um, uh, you're going to use you're going to use electric, which is why that's what you see is, is electric vehicles and electric buses, and of course the list goes on of, of what is electrifying now. You know, including heavy equipment. But, but soon, even uh, as soon as a couple of years from now, there's going to be a lot more hydrogen nearby. And then it probably makes sense to make half of your fleet, or, or it just depends, of course, on the, on the application, but make it hydrogen, and, and we can get into why. But, but you know, refuel so much quicker, and it just goes so much further, right? You can recharge your battery on the fly uh, with hydrogen fuel. And I think we're going to spend quite a bit of time today talking about producing that hydrogen and getting it where it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of technological innovation going on right now in the hydrogen space. Yeah. Um, all the engine manufacturers are looking to be able to utilize hydrogen in their products. Um, the turbine technology manufacturers are looking to be able to utilize hydrogen in their, in their products. Uh, vast uh, improvements being made with fuel cells and all that. And one of the key pieces of this is the uh, production and distribution and storage of hydrogen which is really a big part of what the uh, Obsidian Hub is about. Yep. So where do, you, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with uh, production? Do you want to start with storage? Do you want to talk about the overall infrastructure requirements? And well, let's, let's just start big picture, just where you left off. You know, um, tran transmission and, and uses of hydrogen is very regional specific. Okay. So let's orient our audience a little bit. We're in, we're in Portland, Oregon today. Uh, we're on the west side of the Cascade Mountains. Very rainy, but that's, this is where the population centers are. Very, you know, lots of trees. Uh, you know, Seattle is very similar, also west side. And of course, you've got the Cascade that just divides uh, the, the two zones of the northwest. If you get east of the Cascades, that's where all the sun is. It's a very arid um, area. I was just looking at uh, Arlington. Turns out that's where um, Seattle and Portland uh, garbage goes. It's a giant landfill. But I was just, just studying that. For another piece of, of, of hydrogen work that I'm doing, they get six inches of rainfall a year. You know, we get 36 here on, on the west side. So again, just to, for the audience to understand, the renewable energy is on the east side. That's not just the sun, but it's also the wind. It's also most of the hydro. It just is, This is generally speaking. Of course, there is some hydro on this side, but, but most of it's uh, where the mighty Columbia River comes through in the arid uh, east side. So. As renewable energy developers, that's really the, the roots of, of Obsidian. We've been doing solar for 10, 12 years now. Um, we've done all of our work um, in the solar-only business um, in Southeast Oregon. That's where that's where all the sun is. But so, you know, we want to make electrolytic hydrogen, as you mentioned. We want to take a renewable energy, uh, split the water molecule, make hydrogen, store hydrogen, and, and then make it available. Um, so that's going to happen um, I guess it's most obvious for that to happen on the east side. But then, of course, who's going to use it? Uh, it turns out there are a lot of industries on the, on the east side, and I can talk to that to some degree. But, but really, the biggest users are going to be the load centers. That's where the people are on the west side. So we have a, a solution um, on the west side as well. Our, our hydrogen hub really encompasses both sides of the mountains. Um, but the energy, uh, the renewable energy, again, is on the east side, and, and so getting it to the west side, um, at least in the near term, say the next five or 10 years, is probably not a pipeline. It's just too hard to build a pipeline through the Cascades. Um, there are some pipelines existing, but of course those are natural gas. Um, so getting that renewable energy over the mountains sooner is gonna be using existing transmission. You know, this, this is a very common theme though, even as we extend down into California, a lot of the renewable resources are towards the Central Valley, you know, and, and out in the desert areas of the state where where people don't necessarily live. So the challenge is getting the energy to uh, to the population centers. Right. And uh, so we have a, a huge uh, transmission challenge. 
And uh, we were speaking a little bit. I, I think uh, you and the team at Obsidian have some interesting uh, insights and thoughts about electric transmission and uh, the capacity on those lines and how that would um, really, uh, how it would interact uh, with, with hydrogen from a from a regional energy perspective. Uh, should, we, should we dive into that a little bit? Sure, sure. I just think this is fascinating. And I should caveat that I'm not a transmission expert. I, I'm just diving into this in the last year or so. But there's really two, two sides of the same coin, and, and that is on one side, transmission is contracted. It is, it's not available. If, if you want to have a new, a new project plugged into the grid, it's really hard to make that happen. There's just not available capacity in a fixed and firm, you know, meaning 24-7. Uh, 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 there's just not capacity for transmission for new projects, for a new project on the east side, for example. But uh, otherwise, on a flexible basis, and that's, that's where these electrolyzers come in, they, they're giant 100 megawatt plus flexible loads, they can be run um, on, a, on a flexible basis, and really what I mean by that is not during peak load, right? So when there is space on the grid, when, when the grid is not um, under duress or, or full of, you know, of, of users, um, so, so that's our west, our side plan in a nutshell is bring renewable energy across the mountains when there is renewable, en when there is uh, transmission available uh, store that energy as hydrogen, so we, we make uh, uh, hydrogen through an electrolyzer. Uh, store it on site, and, and, and what does that mean? Well, we want to store it right next to a, uh, a power plant that can then, of course, make electricity when the load is high. Uh, so that's how we bring renewable energy uh, uh, to the load centers using existing infrastructure. So that infrastructure is not just transmission, but also uh, power plants, these, these combustion turbines, and man, that's been one of the exciting things about my job in the last six months is I've learned everything I've, I, 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 I could about, about combustion turbines. It's actually pretty old technology and still uh, very applicable for, for hydrogen. I, I just think the fact that you can burn a fuel, in, any fuel really, in a, a turbine is, is pretty handy, right? I mean, it's sort of basic, it's just combustion. Um, but, but hydrogen is actually pretty basic. It's just another fuel. Um, but we can burn uh, renewable energy as hydrogen um, to meet load in these, in these existing gigantic power plants um, on, on the west side um, uh, to meet load. And I want to say just one more thing on this. These power plants are just invaluable in that they're flexible, right? They, they come on, they, they are there when you need them. I work for a renewable energy developer. I know a lot about sun and wind as a resource. Very helpful. Uh, the sun is, is, is there when, when, when you need electricity most of the time, you know, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. But it's also not there a lot of times when you need electricity. So, so we need a generation um, facility or, or asset uh, uh, that can make electricity when you need it. So we call that dispatchable energy resource. And sun and wind is not really in that category. It's not dispatchable, but hydrogen is, right? Yeah, and that's, that's been a common uh, theme throughout the uh, Power Talk series so far is really uh, embracing an all-of-the-above approach. And when we look at system decarbonization, it's not necessarily about uh, throwing away technologies. It's really about re rethinking and re reinventing uh, fuels and going to uh, renewable fuels as opposed to natural gas and renewable diesel as opposed to diesel and those types of things. And that's where hydrogen gets really exciting. Where you, where you, where, what you mentioned about the dispatchability and stuff like that, uh, unfortunately, <clears throat> there are times of the year where we have a lot of solar production or a lot of wind production, and uh, that production is lost because there's nowhere for it to go. It, it, it can't be used. Uh, we, we see negative pricing in markets and stuff like that. I just pulled up on, on my computer real quick, just looking uh, year to date uh, in the month of just the month of March. Uh, actually, no, this is year to, year to date curtailed megawatt hours in the California Independent System Operator. To date, there's been 815,000 megawatt hours curtailed. Yeah, that's that's lost opportunity. Yeah, it is. And one of the promises of hydrogen is the ability to take that 815,000 megawatt hours that you're talking about, mm -hmm. running electrolyzers, producing electrolytic hydrogen, putting that in a bottle, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, whatever that bottle may be, a pipeline or, or, or what have you, or, or different types of hydrogen storage, and then being able to use that uh, yeah. w when we need that energy. And that's, that's a big part of the promise of hydrogen is the seasonal shifting of renewable energy to be able to use it when we need it. If we put that energy into a lithium ion battery, that, that, that battery is gonna start losing its energy, losing its energy, losing its energy. And it's very difficult to seasonally uh, transfer, seasonally store energy where, where that's a big part of the promise of hydrogen. So that, that's why this conversation is going to go on and on because there's so much interest in this space, there's so much investment coming into this space right now and uh, we're starting to finally gain some traction in the hydrogen space. So that's really a big part of it and the infrastructure necessary to produce that hydrogen and store that hydrogen and bring it to markets where it's going to be consumed is a big piece of what Obsidian Renewables is all about. Yeah, yeah, you, you nailed it. Storage is just so important. And, and right now, the only, well, I don't want to say the only storage, but everybody looks to batteries as as the option for grid storage. And yeah, okay, for, for a day or for half a day, maybe, but, but not more than that. Uh, we've done a lot of looking at storage as hydrogen, of course, but comparing it to other technologies and I mentioned batteries. <clears throat> uh, yes, on, on a short-term basis, batteries are a good option. Um, pumped hydro is something I looked a lot, a lot at. Um, kind of a good option, but but very expensive and very regional specific, right? You got to have two lakes that are, that you know, separated by elevation, and and um, and of course, everybody knows that siting and permitting some big project like that is pretty hard to do, right? Kind of like building a new pipeline. It's it's pretty hard to do. Uh, but but hydrogen, as Obsidian is thinking about it, is a storage technology that could be done anywhere. And, and when we prove that, and, and I have to caveat that, of course, we haven't done this yet. We just we just have some good, pretty good ideas. But I call it the uh, energy global the global energy solution uh, for storage, which is, you know, we we all know that we need renewable energy storage, as you outlined nicely with the be all end all goal being seasonal. But that's you know that's that's really hard. Uh, it's just you know you got to have a, a whole lot of um, capacity. You know the, the salt domes is a, a great example of a potential seasonal storage. Uh, you know in Delta, Utah, they're, they're, this, that project is in is in late stages of development. They're actually starting construction this summer, I believe. But but um, but the the thing that Obsidian is doing is 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 we don't need a specific geology like those salt domes. Uh, um, we don't need the the pumped hydro, which is, again, another very site-specific technology, we think we can do storage um, anywhere, really. And uh, uh, one of our big ideas on that is, is a pipeline, not one that cuts across the Cascades, because that's just too hard to build, and, uh, but one that's right underneath a, a solar facility. You know, we, we have one prototype, or I should say conceptual design, that's 200 miles long, all within 150 acres of storage, of of solar, I should say. So, so a co So basically, building serpentine pipe yeah. under under a, uh, under an existing solar field for hydrogen storage. Yeah. And would the, would that hydrogen in that pipe be a liquid form or gaseous form? Gaseous. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and I want to emphasize that this is not cheap. Um, it's but it is about one tenth the pri the the price of a similarly sized similar number of megawatt hours battery. Right, so so you just get into like the the billions and billions of dollars when you talk about this kind of a this size of renewable energy storage in batteries, and you're a tenth cheaper with this thing that this idea we're talking about. So you know, there's still it's still many millions or hundreds of millions even, but it but it's not as much as a battery. I'm almost seeing hydrogen as like an analog to diesel or other traditional fuels, wherein you take the energy when and where it's either cheap or free. You turn it into a physical product with uh, energy potential within it, and then you can either burn that product on site to create energy and transmit that, or you can find some sort of a way to move that product wherever it is going to get burnt and utilized. Yeah. So, like, I guess, like something like diesel. Uh, everyone uses it everywhere, and the only reason why we're backing off that now is because of the environmental concerns. So do you expect uh, hydrogen fuel to be as popular as, as fossil fuels? 
Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I oftentimes use uh, gasoline and diesel as my analogy with electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicles. Like you need both. They both have their place in the world. Um, and but a fuel or a, a molecule is is still going to be needed, right? You, you meet a lot of these. Um, very progressive thinkers that sort of talk about electrifying everything. And I think that hydrogen just needs to be part of that. As long as hydrogen is included in that electrify everything, then, then I'm okay with that. And, and it should be, right? We're talking about electrolytic hydrogen right now. But, but having a molecule is just um, easier or more dense uh, energy storage than just an electron. That's, that's how I think about it. Again, I, I kind of always go back to transportation and I think a big battery in a car is pretty helpful for 100 miles, or, or maybe even if it's a, a light duty vehicle, maybe even 300 miles. But but it, it electrons just don't carry as much energy as a molecule. If you can put hydrogen into a tank, you can just get a lot further than you can with a, a full battery. So let's, uh, let, let's talk about putting that hydrogen in a tank a little more, because um, you know, you'd mentioned the project in Utah, mm -hmm. and this is a massive project that uh, is uh, utilizing salt caverns. For storage, and I just want to unpack storage a little bit. We've we've talked about storage on Power Talk before, and uh, basically, uh, you know, you can store hydrogen in a gaseous form, you can store hydrogen in a uh, in a liquid form, and you can store hydrogen in uh, in, a, in a metal hydride, which uh, we're very very bullish on the metal hydride technology because of its simplicity and safety. But you know, ha having said that. Um, there, you know, the large-scale hydrogen storage are some of the things that you guys have really done some uh, some thinking about, and you know, we talked about pumped hydro, for example, being very, very uh, dependent upon specific geographical uh, 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 characteristics with regards to an upper lake or a lower lake, and uh, the salt domes are only in, in certain locations. So, on a, on a massive storage perspective. Um, you know, the, the manifold under a solar field, I think, is, is brilliant. I think, you know, this is the type of, uh, you know, revolutionary thinking that's going to solve some of these problems. What, what are some of the other things that you guys are looking at for, you know, uh, you know, massive wholesale storage of hydrogen in the context of a Pacific Northwest hydrogen hub? Yeah, yeah, thanks for, thanks for the question. It's, it is something we've thought a lot about. Uh, we, we always come back to this notion that we want a product that we can use anywhere, right? Um, the salt domes being the, sort of the classic case of something that you just can't use anywhere. Uh, the other uh, favorite, in my book at least, is um, a very large hole in the ground. Uh, it's a seven meter diameter, um, hundreds, I believe up to 600 meters deep. Um, we do sell excavators. It's a, it's a, it, I guess it's actually, that the drilling that hole is actually not a technological revolution. It's been done many times. Um, they use them for uh, coal mining. I think it's an air shaft for, mm -hmm. for coal mining. Yep. Uh, we've talked most with a company out of uh, um, Australia uh, that, that's drilled hundreds of these for, for different uh, operations. Now, building a, a steel tank inside of that <clears throat> hole is novel and, and new, but well, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't caveat. It is new, but it's still, it's just a, a tank inside of a hole. Um, that's the, the, the next step. Uh, we actually talked about um, that technology in our uh, recent concept paper or, or a full application that we just submitted, but we also mentioned that it's not quite there yet in terms of technology readiness level. Okay. It hasn't been done before. But the scale of storage is right there with the manifold, or, or even larger. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of metric tons of, um, of hydrogen, and again, can be done almost anywhere. Yes, of course, it has to have um, the right ground underneath. There's some question of, of the basalt in, in this area being a, a problem or not. We, we don't really know. Um, but, um, but but there's more areas that you can drill in than, than you might believe, right? This is another place where that reutilization of existing infrastructure argument that I talked about earlier is kind of interesting, right? Again, we have fossil fuel technology, in this case, uh, coal mining that we can repurpose and, and drill holes for, for a different purpose. Uh, everybody knows we're, we're pretty good at drilling holes in the ground for fossil fuels, right? We can do it in right. thousands of feet of water in the ocean. Um, 
So we think that uh, holes in the ground might be another option. And, and the kind of the beauty of that is it doesn't even need a, a giant solar field. Here on the west side of the Cascades, again, um, a lot of people, a lot of trees, uh, fewer solar fields. Um, but, but this option needs, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's a football field or, or something less even, but it, but it, it's, it's a vertical underground storage option, which doesn't need, you know, a pretty small footprint. Yeah, and this was this was a presentation I saw as well. It was given by Ardent Underground. That's right. And just a, a fascinating technology that shows that shows a lot of promise. Um, and they're not the only ones. There's yeah. another company who wants to do it too. But it's it's taking you know it's taking a technology for which there is a decent foundation and, mm -hmm. and taking it to the next level, mm -hmm. as opposed to a complete leap of faith with something that's absolutely never been done before. So that's that's kind of exciting. Well, I'm sort of seeing uh, the hydrogen generation that has like this modular piece where you can have energy, electricity uh, from any source, be it solar, river, geothermal, whatever. Uh, and you can make hydrogen off of that and then you can store that hydrogen in just about any way you choose. A uh, mm -hmm. hole in the ground, uh, an elaborate pipeline beneath uh, a solar field or uh, some of these hydride options. Is, is that about right? Like, is hydrogen storage pretty dang modular? Or I, I think it is. I mean, I, I want to throw out a statement. I'll, I'll take my obsidian hat off for a minute and just be just be me and say that. I, I mean, you, you have natural gas pipelines across the planet, and if, if at least here in the Pacific Northwest, I'm pretty comfortable saying they're not going to be carrying natural gas in 15 years or 20 years. They're just not. Uh, there's there's laws against it, and, and I, we can dive into to what those are. So that's hydrogen storage and transportation and and distribution, um, and and it's a ways off. But but that's the future. That's exciting to me. You know. I think there's um, we we can debate what the time frame is. Yeah. I think we know the. I think we agree that the end game is there. I think the time frame is going to be dependent upon uh, you know uh, availability of financing and, and, and those types of things. And I think a big question right now is the existing pipeline infrastructure. Um, you know, can it, what, what's the reutilization of it? You know, what are we going to have to do to existing pipelines to store hydrogen? Um, but at, at, at the least, you know, at the very least, we have those rights away. <laughs> I was going to say the same we thing. We have the rights away, so we, mm -hmm. we, we know what the map is going to look like, and a lot of our infrastructure has been built around that delivery system. So we know where the hydrogen pipelines are going to go. We don't know if the existing gas infrastructure is going to be, to, to what extent it will be able to be reutilized. Is it going to have to be relined? Is it material changes? But the existing rights away is a big, big piece of this. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that that's part of the focus of, 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 of how this is going to get done. And, and even twinning, they, they call it, when you put two pipes right next to each other. Right. That's, uh, in fact, um, Northwest Natural is themselves talking about twinning with 100% hydrogen gas pipelines next to natural gas pipelines. And I, I was going to just draw on my experience at TriMet to tell you that when you build a new light rail line, the hardest part and the most expensive part is the real estate and, and sure. the, the, the right of way. Like, like you said, you know, it's just, it's so much easier uh, to build something when you have that and... And we already have that for, for pipelines, right? It's just, it's just natural gas right now. That's always a good trivia question. You know, who are the largest real estate owners in the United States besides for the U.S. government? It's the railroads. I was going to say the railroads. It's the yeah. railroads, yeah. absolutely. You know, it's it's yeah. it's eight feet at a time. <laughs> it's, well, they're the original firm. owners, right? Exactly. They, they got it all first. Exactly. So, you know, the, <laughs> well. the, the interesting thing here is, is you know, there are some technological challenges, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of R and D going into addressing those challenges. But the, the roadmap is there with regards to you know where the hydrogen is going to flow and and where it's going to get consumed. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, again, it's about fuel switch, switching and, and technology changing. Uh, we started talking a little bit about uh, transmission and siting and the difficulties in that. And you know, I hear stories of woe from developers you know all the time about. Oh my God! You know, if I get into the transmission queue now with a project into the Cal ISO, it's going to be you know 2030, you know, before I might have deliverability. Uh, I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that because I think some of the things that uh, you're looking at with Obsidian are interesting, and some creative thinking there. With uh, I think you guys, do you call it your West Side strategy, or we call it the West Side solution now? Okay, the West Side solution now. 
Uh, let's talk about that because the transmission is a big piece of this as well. As we started out in the beginning, uh, you, you very astutely, I think, pointed out that we can move energy as a hydrogen molecule or as an electron. Yeah. The hydrogen molecule is going to move through a pipe mm -hmm. eventually. Somehow it's going to move through a pipe, and we kind of know where those pipes are. We're just not sure what those pipes are going to be made of at this point. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just take that as, as a given for now to, to simplify this. But if we're moving electrons, um, you hinted at the beginning of this that there are some real challenges with regards to moving electrons around. Let's, uh, let's dig into that a little bit and talk about you know, what, some of the, uh, what some of the approaches may be to, uh, to uh, un uncongest that congestion that we're all dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did a lot of digging on this, actually. It turns out Bonneville Power Administration, right, they kind of own uh, most of the transmission around. Uh, and they're a, a public uh, agency and, and they, you know, there's publicly available data. So I was able to look at, at data on this, and, and uh, I guess the most fascinating thing for me is that in some of the major weather events we've had recently, uh, you know, my light stayed on. I, I don't want to speak for the whole the region of Portland, but but the light stayed on in general, right? So the grid does work, generally speaking. Uh, of course, if you're on the coast or one of these sort of the far ends of the grid, that's a little bit less so, right? That, that if, you're, if you're far away from the load centers, the grid um, has, has, struggles sometimes. But in general, you know, we're in a first world country and, and, and the grid works pretty well and the lights stay on all the time. Even during uh, a really cold snap, or, or I even looked at uh, data from last summer during the, the, a heat wave we had, and, and again, um, you know, all the air conditioners kick on and, and uh, a high load event and, and, the, and the grid works. And what the guess that what I'm trying to drive home here is that means we have the capacity to meet a very high load events. And, and that means the rest of the time there's capacity available. And that's, a, that's sort of a controversial statement um, in the transmission world, um, but, I, but I wish it wasn't. You know, it just seems sort of obvious to me. But, but I guess I can, I can step back a little bit and say, at least at, at midnight, uh, uh, there's plenty of capacity available. And there's renewable energy available then too, whether it's wind or, 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 or hydro, uh, it's there. And so um, Obsidian's West Side solution is to bring that renewable energy across existing transmissions, uh, uh, transmission lines uh, uh, when it's available and, and when there's capacity available and then turn it into hydrogen. So, so kind of like you put it, you know, you bring the renewable energy over as an electron through the, over the Cascade Mountains and then you turn it into a, a hydrogen atom um, here uh, at the population center, at the power plant. Uh, there's, there's a number of gas plants um, um, here in the Portland area and Seattle area. And then that renewable energy is available for dispatch, right? We were talking about dispatch earlier. Uh, when when you need it to, to meet those that high load time and, and and the beauty of that is you kind of um, almost feels like a loophole you know we, you almost get around the transmission problem which is uh, at the highest load times you are at capacity and with a growing load um, of course uh, you know populations growing and industries growing and uh, more demand for renewable energy, uh, there is a legitimate concern uh, around transmission. I, I didn't mean to paint the picture that transmission is, works just fine because we do expect to need more transmission, um, but, but we do feel like we found a solution that most people aren't talking about, which is, which is a more efficient use of existing transmission. It's it, very, very interesting. So basically what you're talking about to really simplify this mm -hmm. is you're talking about driving from you know, driving from Sacramento to Los Angeles on I-5, but doing it at midnight to four in the morning, as opposed to trying to do it during rush hour traffic. That's a great analogy, yeah. You know, yeah. and it makes a lot of sense. And I think the challenge is probably, you know, just, just you know, an immediate response. The challenge is one of uh, a regulatory challenge. Uh, yeah, possibly. And a, and a legislative challenge because mm -hmm. tr transmission rights are usually firm transmission rights where the, uh, the capacity on that is purchased. Like, you know, BPA bought the right lane on Highway 5 from, you yeah. know, from Sacramento to Fresno, and it's their lane, and only they can use it. And, you know, that's kind of how transmission works. And well, and we think we, we, I'm speaking again a bit out of my wheelhouse here, but I'm, we think we have a way around that, which is that the power plant themselves, the company, whether it be a utility or an independent power producer, they themselves 
own the electrolyzer, or at least uh, we have a, an, an agreement, maybe a tolling agreement with them. But but they already because they already have that capacity, right? They already bought the lane on I five, as you put it. Right. So so they can use it uh, whenever they want it, and those are the that's the same entity that has all the pressure put on them from these. Uh, Oregon, the Oregon law, HB 2021, and then CETA uh, in Washington, uh, is putting the pressure on the utilities to decarbonize. And so, so again, if we're hoping that the, the way around um, the permitting process, for example, is, is just to use the entities that already have the, the rights. That'd be enough to get it started, at least. And once you have some momentum, once you have mm-hmm. a handful of success stories, I, I imagine things would kind of loosen up after that. Yeah, that's the idea. We want to get the ball rolling. We've got, got a big hill to climb. Yeah, just kind of re- think, thinking a little bit differently, you know. And if I can backtrack, kind of restate the, the vision you have is you'd have your solar field somewhere away from a population center, effectively, uh, air quote, charging uh, the hydrogen storage 24-7. And then on the other side of a mountain, you have a population center and then, you know, eight o'clock at night at whatever time the, the load drops down, that's when you start funneling electricity into that population center. Uh, I see a correction. Yeah, yeah, not, not quite. See, we, we want to definitely take renewable energy and put it on the grid anytime you possibly can, right? That's the go-to, that's the most efficient use of, of electricity. Because so, what I thought I heard you say is make hydrogen on the on the west side, or I'm sorry, on, on the east side, on the sunny side, and then turn it back into electricity just to send it over the mountains in order to make hydrogen again. And that would be less desirable, right? Because you're going to lose efficiency every time you convert. Right. Was that, yeah, that, 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 the, that was exactly where I was going. Yeah, so we don't want to convert and convert and convert. You know, we want to put green electrons on the grid and, and frankly use them in your air conditioner or, or whatever use. Uh, as much as possible, and then the you know the the part that we're going after is that dispatchable power when when the renewable energy is not available, and and our idea is that we would store that energy as hydrogen on the west side next to the population centers. Does that does that clarification make sense? We just don't want to make the hydrogen on the east side and then convert it back into electricity, send it over the transmission lines on the. To, to the load centers and then turn it back into hydrogen again, that, that's a whole lot of conversions. Yeah, let, let me help you out a little bit, Nate. It, it, the production of hydrogen, the production of electrolytic hydrogen is energy intensive. Mm-hmm. So any energy that the system needs, you want to be able to provide that energy into the system when it needs it. Okay. But what you do want to do is you want to be able to utilize your excess energy and not necessarily throw it away. And that's when you would produce that electrolytic hydrogen. And we're talking about right now, as we build more and more solar uh, throughout the West and more and more storage throughout the West, it's, it's just not going to get us there. And we're talking about, you know, projections of 10 to 15 percent, you know, uh, curtailment on a, on a system basis on, on an annual. So, you know, grabbing that 10 to 15 percent excess that we're producing and bottling it and moving it to the evening okay. uh, ramp, or moving it to the summertime when we really need it. Is, is part of, part of the key here, because the electrolytic hydrogen is is uh, very very costly to uh, to produce. So your non your non peak times would effectively be a zero carbon at that point, or or near zero carbon because they'd be able to get everything from these uh, wind and hydro, for example. That's that's not being that, that is available in non peak times. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a wind expert, I, I, uh, but I do understand that. Uh, wind is is very commonly blowing in, in, at night when the least amount of energy is, is needed uh, from uh, by load. So, so again, the idea being that you could make hydrogen then, and then it's available to uh, to meet load during peak times. Yeah, it's one of the challenges with both with both wind and solar is that uh, mm-hmm. very often they're not coincident with peak, mm-hmm. and uh, so being able to move those. Uh, to where you need them on the supply stack is, uh, is is key, and you know we're trying to do that with batteries now. Mm-hmm. Uh, lithium ion is uh, you know Mr. Lithium Ion is in a position right now. I don't think he ever expected to be in, <laughs> with regards of you know gigawatts sitting out there 
uh, moving electricity around four hours at a time. I, I think you know lithium-ion batteries are great for cell phones and cars and stuff like that, but the fact of the matter is it's the state-of-the-art technology right now, and there is a real race going on with regards to uh, different battery chemistries um, because the realization that we're not going to be able to do all of this with lithium-ion. Again, it's an all-the-above. You know, so it's an all above, and we're going to see other technologies out there. And I think we're going to have some future episodes and other technologies. But the uh, the challenges are, are indeed vexing. We talked about um, in, in in previous episodes the challenges that this energy transition is going to place on the transmission and distribution system. And you know, the uh, the Obsidian uh, West Side strategy, so to speak, is an interesting approach to helping to solve some of that. We saw. Uh, a week and a half, two weeks ago, the California Independent System Operators came out and they're asking for a $10 billion investment into California's transmission system, which I think is just the tip of the iceberg. I think it's just a start. It's not, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's not the answer. So we have challenges on our infrastructure, and yet at the same time as we're challenging that infrastructure, we have regulations uh, coming at us that are, uh, that are just expediting um, this uh, this transition and, and, and forcing the momentum of the transition. And uh, maybe we could talk about those a little bit. We call it, uh, in some of the conversations we've had, the uh, the Northwest Utility Crunch. But we have things like uh, CETA and HB 2021 laws in Washington and Oregon that are really, um, you know, pushing this forward and almost forcing the industry into position of catch-up with regards to R&D and technology development to be able to uh, meet and satisfy the regulations that are coming at us. And mm -hmm. I know you're looking at this every every day, and Obsidian is one of the leading thinkers on this, but you want to talk a little bit about what's happening here in the Pacific Northwest and uh, and you know how those challenges uh, may manifest themselves, uh, not only in infrastructure requirements, but potentially in uh, in the price the consumer sees. Sure, yeah, that's, that's the... That's a big suitcase I just gave you. <laughs> I, I mean, the regulations are, are just so strong. They're... I mean, I, I don't want to uh, laugh them off, but, but I, I question if we can actually meet them. You know, even with the big, you know, billion-dollar ideas that Obsidian has, I still, you know, even if we were to build them out and, and ten times more, I wonder uh, if we could meet um, the, the regulations. And, and I'll dive into those in, in one second, but I just want to say that um, it looks like utilities uh, are going to be our first customer of, of hydrogen. And when we started this a year ago, or, or even two years ago, in the case of Ken, <laughs> we were never looking at utilities as our first customers because everybody knows the utilities move slow. And uh, and and now I can say with with some confidence that you know we have an exclusivity agreement with with Grant County uh, PUD, for example. Uh, we're we're going to build them a peaker plant that runs on hydrogen. Um, there are you know very most likely our, our first hydrogen customer. And why um, has a whole lot to do with, with these laws that you just lined out. Um, HB 2021 uh, is policy uh, passed in the Oregon legislature. Let me see if I can get this right. It requires 80% reduction in carbon, um, carbon emissions by 2030 and 100% by, by 2040 or 45. And then similarly in Washington state, uh, CETA, clean energy, something, I forget what that stands for, but... Um, it's probably was, something about happy children. <laughs> CETA requires 80%, no, no, 100% reduction, um, very similar law, reduction in carbon um, by, by the same mark, uh, which is 2030. So that is just right around the corner if you want to build very large uh, infrastructure projects, right? Seven years is nothing. A little shout out to Google right here, Clean Energy Transformation Act. Yeah, so that's the Washington effort, uh, Oregon, you know, and, and then you see this up and down the West Coast. We have a lot of similar laws. Um, but it but really is pushing hard. And, and, you know, again, we're basically looking at 100% reduction in, in carbon emissions in seven years, which is, that's a slap in the face. If I was a utility, I'd be... <laughs> trying to figure out how I'm going to possibly do this because that natural gas is such a big part. You know, I've been talking about this the whole show, I suppose, but natural gas is such a big part of these this uh, power uh, electricity generation today. And then 
you know, coal plants are, are shutting down. Uh, there's only one, actually, uh, on the, at least on the west side, uh, in Centralia, Washington, which is shutting down in two years. Uh, and we expect even more pressure to be put on those combustion turbine power plants then. Uh, you know, we're going to need even more natural gas. But again, um, I think I want to say simply that you can substitute natural gas with hydrogen because it, it kind of is simple. See, part, part of this is, you know, we're engineers, right? We went to college to become engineers. So when we hear, you need to do this by then, come hell or high water, our, our, <laughs> our, you know, we think we need to get here by then. We, yeah. we think they're serious about that stuff, you know? Yeah. In a political regime, if, if, if you put a regulation in place and you figure out you can't get there, what you do is you double down on, on the goal and you, and you give yourself more time. Yeah. And I, I think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, think, I think, you know, 2030 is going to become 2040, 2040 yeah. is going to become 2050. But in the meantime, uh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of investment made in here, a tremendous yeah. amount of project opportunity. We're seeing that with uh, a lot of the funding that's coming from the DOE, mm-hmm. uh, a realization that, you know, this is where the future is. And, you know, a perfect example of this, and you, you're kind of uh, underscoring our, one of our premises on Power Talk is that it's not about throwing technologies away, it's about fuel switching. Well, the Los Angeles Basin right now has over 6,000 megawatts of combustion turbines in the basin that they need every night when people mm-hmm. get home from work. Yeah. And uh, they're, they've come to the realization that we're not gonna replace that with storage. It's, it's really about uh, fuel switching and there's a concerted effort to uh, to figure out how to how to replace natural gas with hydrogen, it's going to take a long time. Yeah, yeah. it's going to take a long time, but the movement is definitely there. So, well, and I want to say that, that I mean, I think the fuel switching is the right solution right now. It's it's something we can apply today, and and and, and again, a lot of these natural gas power plants are only ten years old, or, or maybe only fifteen years old. Right, we were talking before the episode about how that that was the solution, right? no more coal, let's do natural gas. And so a lot of these are relatively new. And so running them on hydrogen uh, does make sense. But then I also want to say like in 20 years, uh, it, a fuel cell might make more sense. Uh, right. You know, and then you don't have combustion and, and we haven't jumped into NOx yet, but, but you do get uh, nitrous oxide uh, pollutants with hydrogen combustion uh, to some degree. But so there are, uh, "Quote unquote better solutions like fuel cells, but but they're not built today, and they're gonna take some time to get <coughs> to become economical, and um, but but the, I just think it's so cool that we do have infrastructure and equipment that's ready today to to, to go to zero emissions or, or zero carbon emissions anyway. That's exciting. Let's uh, let, let's talk about chemistry a little bit. Oh yeah. You brought up ni- NOx, nitrous oxides. Yeah. And. Uh, so first of all, when we move from natural gas to hydrogen, uh, natural gas, the chemical formula for natural gas is CH4. So it's a carbon atom surrounded by four hydrogen atoms. So that's a molecule of, of natural gas is basically methane, which, which is CH4. And uh, so when we talk about hydrogen, it's just hydrogen. So the carbon is gone. We've stripped off the carbon. So if we're utilizing hydrogen in a fuel cell or utilizing hydrogen in a turbine or a reciprocating engine, my personal preference, um, we're, we're not producing carbon, but there is still an element of NOx, nitrous oxides. Nitrous oxides from the combustion process, this is just a little little uh, uh, lesson for our listeners here, but nitrous oxides from the combustion process can come from two sources. It can come from what we call thermal NOx or organic NOx. Organic NOx is uh, there may be nitrogens or nitrogen uh, oxides within the fuel itself. So it's passed through in the combustion process and just goes out the exhaust or up the stack from what's inherent in the fuel. And methane will typically have a little bit of nitrogen in it. So we have an, an element of organic NOx. Uh, when we utilize hydrogen, the organic NOx is gone. And what we have is thermal NOx. Mm-hmm. We have nitrous uh, nitrogen molecules blending with oxygen mo- molecules as a result of the combustion process. And the fact of, uh, if I remember my combustion classes correctly back in college, the hotter you combust, the more nitrous oxides you produce. And last time I checked, hydrogen combusts pretty hot. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a pretty hot fuel. So there are some uh, nitrous oxide concerns uh, about hydrogen. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? or? Sure. Yeah, I, that, I just expended that, what I know. That, well, that's that's uh, that's pretty close to my limit as well. I know that I know that NOx goes up with 
temperature. I, I know that the nitrogen and the oxygen are already in the air, so it's not coming from the fuel per se, but it's coming from the air. Uh, but yeah, you heat it up and it, and it does combine and become NOx or uh, NOx. Um, and the hot and the high uh, temperature makes more NOx. In fact, they've been burning hydrogen nearly 100% in combustion turbines for for many years in certain places in the world. And the way they combat this problem is they actually feed steam into the fuel uh, intake as well. And, and um, oddly, that cools the whole combustion, uh, brings combustion temperature down, and, and that's one way to mitigate NOx. It's not a very efficient way to use your combustion turbine, so it's not our end-all goal. But the di diluent, they call it, which is the steam injection, is it's one way to do it. The better way, I, I think, and, and you guys might know more about this than I do, is this SCR, mm -hmm. Selective Catalytic Reduction. Correct. Um, and I, I was just learning earlier that this is even done in, in transportation, but, but, it's, but it's done in, in power plants, very large. I was talking about combustion turbine power plants. But the, I guess where I land on this is, is, you know, my limited understanding is just that this is very well-established, decades-old technology, uh, again, because NOx is something we're used to dealing with. It, it, it is produced from any combustion, including natural gas, and, and yes, including hydrogen. Uh, so, so an SCR will definitely be part of, well, it is already part of these power plants. Again, we want to reuse existing technology. And so you have to, uh, so we use it again uh, with uh, with hydrogen fuel and and every vendor we talked with about um, hydrogen uh, combustion and turbine says we can meet or beat um, the PPM, right? The, the amount of NOx coming out of of these generators um, compared to natural gas. Would you guys forgive a total layman's question? What is NOx and why, why do we care? NOx is, um, it's basically um, nitrogen oxides. So N, nitrogen, O, oxygen, and X could be NO2, NO3, NO4, different oxides of nitrogen. <coughs> Excuse me. And the reason we care about nitrogen oxides is because nitrogen oxides, when released into the atmosphere, can combine with volatile organic compounds and other components uh, to form particulate matter, Parti particularly PM 2.5, particulate matter uh, 2 microns, uh, 2.5 microns or less. And PM 2.5 is, uh, is, is the particulate matters that you, you, you're concerned about because um, they can penetrate sensitive and deep parts of, of your lungs if you're breathing and affect people, asthmatics and stuff like that. So that's why uh, NOx is, is a concern. So what we do to eliminate NOx in the combustion process is we, this is where you really do need a whiteboard, and this is kind of tough doing it on a podcast, but when you mix NOx with ammonia, and ammonia is NH3, what happens is the nitrogens combine to each other. So you get NOx plus NH3, you get two molecules of nitrogen, or N2, you get elemental nitrogen, which is about 80% of our atmosphere, you just let it go and the oxygen and hydrogen uh, combine with each other and you get water. So by mixing ammonia with, uh, with, with, uh, with NOx, uh, you essentially get nitrogen and water. That would be the, uh, the SCR component where that takes place. Correct. It has to be done at a certain temperature. There's a certain temperature range where it has to be done, so the SCR has to be located correctly in the, uh, in the, uh, in, in the exhaust stream. And that, that gets to another fascinating point is, uh, I'm gonna bring this around full circle here, is we were talking about uh, nitrogen, uh, about hydrogen storage and some of the best ways for storage. And there is a contingent out there, uh, had one of them on the phone yesterday, that are arguing one of the best ways to store hydrogen from an industrial perspective is in the form of ammonia. Mm -hmm. And then to strip the hydrogen off of the ammonia when you need the hydrogen and let the elemental nitrogen uh, go to atmosphere. Yeah. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Uh, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about it. We've, we've thought about it at, at Obsidian. Um, we are very focused on, on hydrogen as hydrogen and therefore gaseous hydrogen. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, had a number of meetings with Sandia National Labs. In fact, where we, where we left it with them is, is we want we want them to answer that question. You know, we, we know there's there's losses every time you convert. Like you know, earlier we were talking about 
hydrogen to, to electricity and then, and then back to hydrogen or, or you know, anyway, those, those conversions are always have some losses and, and that's true with hydrogen to ammonia and back to hydrogen again. Right. And, and how much, you know, that's, what are those losses? And I, I couldn't really tell you off the top of my head, but, but if we do think it's an interesting idea, like let's compare this, this manifold we talked about where have all this hydrogen stored underneath uh, a solar field and, and pipes. Well, so how does that compare to to a tank of ammonia, which you've you know you've made ammonia and probably take a, a bit of time to explain how you turn electricity into ammonia. But but you do it by making hydrogen, and then hydrogen becomes ammonia because ammonia is NH three. Um, and so yeah, you can store ammonia as a liquid almost atmospheric pressure, not not quite, but but it's a whole lot easier to store as a liquid uh, compared to hydrogen. And then again, you can imagine either using ammonia as ammonia, because that's how we feed the planet. That's a, another podcast right there, right? Uh, ammonia as, as fertilizer. But, um, but you, you could also, or instead of uh, using it as a fertilizer, you could convert it back to hydrogen and then even back to electricity. And, but all those conversions are going to have losses. And how does that compare to just using hydrogen as hydrogen underneath our solar field? And I don't know the answer, but, but we did... We thought that uh, the brainiacs at Sandia, Sandia might be the right people to answer Smart that. Smart folks. <laughs> yeah. you know, just a public announcement for all you uh, high school juniors and uh, you know college freshmen and stuff like that. Pay attention to chemistry class because it just may come in handy someday. Yeah, and no, I, stuff. Yeah, I do. I do a lot of presentations, and I've started putting in H three. My first slide is usually hydrogen and, and uh, diatomic hydrogen because H two is really how hydrogen. Sort of lives in the world it likes to connect to itself and then i always put nh3 on there and i put ch4 right you mentioned natural gas and right. i even talked a lot about butane and pentane because those are not a lot different than natural gas and um pretty you need a bigger pretty, whiteboard to talk about butane and pentane and uh than uh, methane though. only a little bigger though i think three or four i think four or five, five methanes is a pentane i think anyway something like that yep I, yeah. I must have missed that day i don't know okay but no all, all interesting stuff uh this you know fascinating conversation uh again back to the transportation sector so mm-hmm. i know your 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 heart and soul is really in transportation from uh from and you know that can be transportation of people and machinery it can be transportation of uh of, uh, of molecules, it could be transportation of electrons. It, it, it's all about transportation. But you know, I, I, I got to ask you this because uh, I've heard you talk about this a little bit. So you know, in our lifetimes, from a, from a transportation perspective, you know, are are, are we going to see the flying car? <laughs> Boy, I hope so. I I think uh, it would just be. A, I mean, who would who doesn't want a flying car? Right. right. Have you ever been in rush hour traffic? I, I will die on this hill. I don't want to be in the air for a gridlock. You know what, though? It's, I think it's funny. Is let's say we can figure out the fuel cell. It's got to be power dense enough to fly. Right? Like, so I mentioned I know buses. I know the fuel cells in buses are just these huge, like, beer fridge-sized things, and they're, and they're relatively heavy. So can it be light enough? To, to fit into a, a you know a, a smaller vehicle and, and still you know, you know I guess be light enough is the is the big key here, but what I come back to actually with with this sort of fun conversation is um okay let's say that we do invent that and everybody has a flying car where does all that energy come from, I mean think about how much energy we need today just to make cars work right to make trucks and you know just the high the energy expended today in transportation is immense. I think it would be 10 times bigger if they were all flying cars. You know, it just takes vertical takeoff. It's just an extremely energy expensive experience. <laughs> yeah, the uh, energy is <coughs> such, such an overarching and important topic. And, you know, mm-hmm. realistically, the, the affluence of a society has been uh, historically directly proportional to the amount of energy it consumes. Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to waste energy. <coughs> we also don't want to create energy poverty. So. Uh, the cheaper we can produce energy, the smarter we can be about energy, the more efficiently we can use it. Uh, at the end of the day, that's how uh, we're, we're all going to win from a societal perspective. You know, we're getting on top of the hour here. Um, you know, the microphone is uh, still in front of you, uh, Abe. Anything else you want to you want to share at this point with with, with our listeners uh, from from the from the hydrogen perspective? I think this has been a, a, a fascinating conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I thank you for coming in today, but I do want to give you an opportunity to, to for, for wrap up, if you like. Especially anything about safety. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wrote the safety chapter in our in our application. Uh, safety is such an important part of this. I mean, we don't we don't want to hand wave past safety. Um, my first job out of college was a um, a paper mill engineer. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the converting floor. Okay, that's where you take giant they call them parent paper rolls, and you make toilet paper rolls. Uh, but it's all automated, right? It's just a massive automated uh, production floor. And um, anyhow, they, they really beat you with safety all day, every day. I remember to, in order to go to the bathroom from my office, I had to have my steel-toed shoes on, my, you know, my, my glasses on, my earplugs in, my hard hat on. It was just, it was just very extreme. But, but at, least, at least you knew there was going to be paper, toilet paper in the bathroom, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, no, I just, just to get back to this on safety thing, and thank you for bringing this up, Nate. These whole conversations, uh, you know, are, are based on and, and, and assume that all this is going to be done safely. Yeah. Now, I it think, has I to think be. it's a good bringing up safety. Uh, yeah. Safety is a big part of everything we do here at Peterson. Yeah. Uh, it's a focus every day. Obviously, Obsidian, Peterson, whoever you are, wherever you're working, uh, you want everybody to come home safe. And uh, hydrogen, as Nate pointed out, does 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 uh, pose some challenges from safety. So, uh, a little a little bit more on that from a safety perspective. Yeah, no, I, I have more to learn. Um, I I have learned a fair amount about hydrogen. Always comparing it to uh, other fossil fuels because, of course, that's what we know. Um, so you know, a pro and a con, real quick. Uh, a con against, you know, uh, it's more dangerous because it'll ignite at a lower temperature. I mean, it still takes a, a spark, basically, but, but a, a lower temperature and a different, um, how do I put this concisely? It, it doesn't take as much air mixed in and it'll still ignite. So a different range of, of oxygen mixtures, it'll, 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 compared to natural gas, for example, which requires a more narrow range. Um, but the, 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 the reason hydrogen could be even safer, maybe, is that it dissipates so fast. Uh, if there's a leak, it's gone, and if it pools anywhere, it's in the ceiling, which, which is still something to consider, right, if you're indoors. But, but unlike, uh, you know, let's say diesel or gasoline, for example, um, it, uh, it just goes away, right? It dissipates. So the same, this is the hardest thing about hydrogen, right? It's so... What's the diffuse is the opposite of dense. Uh, yeah. It's so diffuse that it just wants to go away, and that's pretty helpful from a safety perspective. It's not all right here to make an explosion or to make a problem. It's just instantly goes away. I can you know look up YouTube videos of, of uh, hydrogen explosions, and they're they're pretty interesting actually. They're 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 not very exciting actually. They just they're kind of done. Hydrogen flame travels very very quickly. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, but it's it, it's very it's a very quick reaction and it's over. Quick question about that too, as long as we're on the subject and we do have a few minutes. Um, you know, natural gas has no odor, but everybody thinks natural gas smells like sulfur because uh, the the natural gas companies and the utilities who move natural gas around they actually add sulfur to natural gas so we can smell it. Right. Uh, we have not yet figured out how you add something to hydrogen or pipe to give it a smell. And it's very, very difficult to detect hydrogen. And that, you know, I've, I've read about this a little bit, but I don't know where the state of the art is or what the thinking is right now. I know we've come a long way with hydrogen detection. The, uh, the detection technology has come out a long way with regards to our ability to detect it from a fire protection perspective, from, you know, from a worker safety perspective. But for the general public, if we have hydrogen running in pipelines, um, is there, has there been any advances to your knowledge recently with regards to how we may be able to create detection systems for hydrogen? Yeah, I, I did a fair amount of reading on this, again, for this Department of Energy uh, application. And um, I think it's, we're going to have a lot of analogies with natural gas. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the sulfur, I think it's called mercaptan, that they put in natural gas. It makes it smell like a sulfur, right, when there's a leak. There's no reason you couldn't do that with, with hydrogen, too. Same, same thing. Well, let me step back. I mean, there are some reasons to not do that. Um, coming back to transportation, for example, you wouldn't want mercaptan mixed with your hydrogen going through your fuel cell because the fuel cells are pretty picky. They want really, really pure hydrogen. So right. one, one reason not to do that. Um, but there are um, different additives. Um, don't recall the name right now, but, but they're not mercaptans, they're not sulfur. And they don't cause trouble in the fuel cell. Uh, Mercaptan, I guess, sticks to platinum and causes trouble with the catalyst in, in the fuel cell. 
but but I think um, we just take a lot of analogies from all the stuff we already know, whether it be a um, a uh, an odorant, you know, for the the human nose to detect, or or some sort of a SCADA uh, system. Uh, SCADA is a very common sort of safety system used in industry, uh, supervisory control and data acquisition. Uh, but but sniffers is what we call them in, in, in industry, and, and that's just a, a sensor that can smell a chemical. And so we're, you know, we'll have uh, these sniffers that are connected to your SCADA system, and they're you know, creating alarms uh, as needed if there's a leak. Uh, one leak detection system that I looked into that I thought was pretty brilliant was just a, a, a an ear, an electronic ear. It actually listens for that you know, I mean, that's pretty simple, right? But but you can imagine that being also very faint and so faint that only a, a really, you know, electronic ear, right? A mi microphone could hear. Um, but but anyhow, all of these things uh, will, will be front and center um, as we develop our projects. Uh, that's actually on my shoulders um, as the, the resident safety developer. Heavyweight. At, at Obsidian. Um, we, we just need to make sure the safety is, is, in, is in the, uh, you know, front and center of the agenda as we develop these things. Frankly, it's a little early, to be, to be really honest. I mean, that's how early stages we are. But, um, but in a year, it, it won't be. Or even six months, it won't be. It's going to be time to, to, to talk safety. Well, it's good to have, it's good to hear we've got line of sight to that, and we're, we're thinking yeah. about that, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. Uh, Abe, I want to thank you for, for sitting here chatting with us for an hour today. Um, I want to thank the team at City of Renewables for, uh, for letting you go for an hour or so and uh, letting us uh, pick your brain and uh, share the afternoon with you about a very exciting topic that uh, I think is a very, very important part of our future and certainly exciting to uh, all of us involved in this space. And uh, stay tuned, more to come. But uh, thanks again. And, uh, oh, yeah. No, thank you, Greg. You've been such a supporter of Obsidian. and. and you both for this podcast. I mean, we got to get this this word out, and, and I, I think I think we're getting there. Uh, I you know I live in my own little hydrogen bubble. I, I don't know how much we're talking about hydrogen uh, outside of that bubble, but but thanks to podcasts like this, I think we're going to get there. Yeah, tremendous amount of discussion. So tune in, join the conversation, uh, get your comments to us. Uh, that email address is podcast at petersonpower.com. Podcast at petersonpower.com. Get us your thoughts, get us your questions. Um, who knows, if you want to sit in the hot seat and chat with us an hour about a subject, we'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. So thanks again.